Now, I know, I know that you, you have something to say to America. I do. Here's the camera right there. America, I want you to know that before I'm an American, I'm a Britney fan. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Medusini. My name is Jasmine. And today we are going to finish this goddamn monster of a series with what I assume will be the longest episode of these three parts. In my ranking of Britney Spears songs, we are going to finally tackle the top 30 tracks. If you didn't listen to the first two episodes, I'll quickly explain that while the title for this episode says I'm ranking the songs worst to best, the ranking is actually based on three main factors. One is just how good I think an individual song is. Two is how significant the song was to Britney's career. And three is how significant the meaning of the song is in context to Britney's life. If you want a longer explanation, go listen to the first episode. Today we're starting at number 30 and... Um... Well... I have no explanation for this. Number 30 is Out From Under. Breathe you out Breathe you in You keep coming back to tell me You're the one who could've been this is kind of embarrassing. As I discussed in previous episodes, I originally made this list around 2016. I did a quick look over the list before I started recording these three episodes, but I guess I just missed this one. I, I really don't know why I put this song at number 30. Actually, it wasn't even 30. It was number 27 before I started recording this part. So I threw it back to number 30 once I realized it was in this part of the list. If I hadn't already recorded the first two episodes, I would have put it much farther back in the list. Probably not even in the top 50, to be honest with you. So yeah, I, I don't know what happened there. But you know what, it was 2016, there was an election going on, it was very stressful, so I've chosen to forgive myself, and we're just gonna move on to number 29, which is Hot as Ice. Sometimes it's nice to just listen to a pop song with some absolute nonsense lyrics. songs on Blackout that theoretically contains the word fuck? It's on the demo, at least, and then strangely missing on the official track. The same happens on Get Naked, where fuck and shit are censored on the official release. It's really strange to me, but it's not the first time Britney's albums have had her more adult language removed from tracks before the record hit shelves. The word shit was cut out of Lonely on the Britney album and Early Morning on In The Zone. After Blackout, there were similar cuts on Circus as well, like with shit and fucking censored on Blur. I think the first time Britney actually says a swear word that isn't just hell, damn, bitch, or ass, which are kind of lighter swears, is on her latest album, Glory. 
Brit straight up couldn't say fuck freely in her own songs until like 2016, which is so puritanical and odd. In fact, her use of very light swear words became a point of controversy in the early 2000s, as exemplified with this Entertainment Weekly article from 2001. As if her racy wardrobe didn't clash enough with her professed good girl personal life, Britney Spears is now defending her use of the occasional less than innocent curse word on her upcoming album, Britney. She explains, When I say hell and damn, I say it out of frustration in my songs. It's not like a normal term of endearment that I use all the time. I know it was the early 2000s, but like, I can't imagine getting upset at a pop star who's like 20 years old saying hell or damn, when today Olivia Rodrigo is saying fuck while still working for the Disney Channel. Kids these days don't know how good they got it. At least Britney gets to swear on her Instagram now whenever she wants. Holy shit, fuck balls. Whoa, girl, fuck. Wow. Oh my god. Uh. Ugh, I love Freeny. Moving on, number 28, Like a Virgin slash Hollywood by Madonna featuring Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and Missy Elliott. This song is obviously from the iconic 2003 VMA performance in which Britney and Christina infamously kissed Madonna on stage. Like practically everything Britney did at the time, the performance caused controversy. If saying hell or damn was enough to prompt backlash in 2001, obviously the world was probably not yet ready for televised lesbian kissing featuring three pop stars two years later. I don't know why people are making such a big deal about it. You really don't. I really don't. <laughs> you really don't. And are you surprised? Well, hasn't anyone ever seen two girls kiss before? Well, I don't know if most of America has. Have you? Yeah. Oh, no, listen, they're just acting this hip because you're here. Even other celebrities weighed in on the event, with Stevie Nicks calling it the most obnoxious moment in television history. Bette Midler chastised Britney for setting a poor example for young girls, then went on to call Britney a wild and wooly slut three years later when men shoved cameras up Britney's skirt without her consent. For some, there was a valid concern about how the girl-on-girl -girl action sexualized lesbianism for the male gaze, and that's not a totally illegitimate criticism of the kiss. Much of the negative reaction, though, was also rooted in misogynistic slut-shaming and homophobia, including from, I'm sorry to say, Queen Beyoncé herself, who saw the performance live and later told UK newspaper The Sun, I couldn't do what Britney and Madonna did. I have standards. There are things I will not do. Beyoncé apparently attributed her standards to her religious beliefs as a Christian, with The Sun publishing their interview with the title, God Won't Let Me Kiss Girls. I'm sure Beyoncé likely feels differently now, but this was where society was at in 2003. Britney and Madonna were pushing the boundaries of sexuality in mainstream pop culture. Sure, they were doing it in a way that hetero men could fetishize, but let's be honest, what can't hetero men fetishize? From a certain angle, the performance looked like a simple piece of trashy, oversexed, early aughts celebrity spectacle. 
but there was also a glittering rebelliousness to it. Music stations always play the same song. We're bored with the concept of right and wrong. Three of the world's biggest pop stars, along with one of the greatest female rappers to ever hit the mainstream, were enthusiastic participants in an event that would undoubtedly be making a lot of the general audience angry. With the VMAs following shortly after Britney's breakup with Justin Timberlake, which threw a whole onslaught of backlash her way, along with her steadily evolving image as a blatantly sexual adult pop star, Brit was shutting the good girl trappings of her baby one more time days, becoming a provocateur in remarkably similar fashion to her onstage kissing partner, Madonna. Some saw their lip lock as a symbolic passing of the torch from the queen of pop to her princess. One person who saw it that way was Madonna herself, telling Out Magazine years later, I am the mommy pop star and she is the baby pop star, and I am kissing her and passing my energy onto her like kind of a mythological fairy tale. Of all the discourse mentioned, much of it revolves around Madonna's kiss with Britney, despite Madonna also having kissed Christina within the same 30 seconds. People cared quite a lot less about Christina's kiss, and that fact was not lost on Christina herself. Because I don't think, <laughs> but that's, an, that's annoying to me because I don't think people actually totally realize that she made out with both of them. Yeah, that yeah, day. yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I definitely saw like the newspaper the next day and it was like, oh, well, I guess I got left out of that. Right. <laughs> there are a few reasons why this kiss was treated as less significant. The main one is that Christina's kiss with Madonna came directly after Britney's when MTV cut to a camera showing Justin Timberlake in the audience. Brit and JT's breakup was still fresh in the public's mind, making his reaction to his ex locking lips with a woman on stage a more juicy detail than the second girl-on-girl -girl kiss still happening on that stage. Christina's kiss just didn't have very good coverage during the VMAs itself, which perpetuated the disproportionate attention Britney received compared to Christina later on, since any news outlets covering the backlash to the performance automatically use clips and stills of Britney and Madonna, as there was practically zilch for Christina and Madonna. Britney was also just a little more relevant to public discourse at the time, becoming an increasingly controversial figure. Again, this was mostly due to her then-breakup with Justin Timberlake, which motivated outlets to depict Britney as a good girl gone bad and burgeoning slut. Unfortunately, a lesbian kiss fit well into that narrative, especially since Britney publicly identified as straight. Here's Britney Spears selling sexuality for attention again, many thought. Even Christina Aguilera apparently held this belief. And I was kind of shocked to see it because I'd only heard nice things coming out of your mouth about Christina, uh, but in this new Blender magazine, she rips into Kelly Osbourne and Beyonce, and you saying that you had to kiss Madonna at the VMAs because you needed a gimmick. And she said, these people aren't artists, they're just performers, fake and superficial. But wait, but wait, I gotta say this, but didn't she kiss her too? Right. <gasps> That's what threw right. me off about she that. She kissed her too, right? Prior to the performance, Britney and Christina were in the midst of a feud that had been simmering for years. Though the two were reportedly very close during their Mickey Mouse Club days, when they entered the pop world as solo artists in the late 90s, the media pit them against one another as competitors rather than peers. In the beginning, neither played into the rivalry publicly, 
claiming in interviews that they were still friendly and respected one another as people and as artists. Rumors continued spreading, though, about a behind-the-scenes feud between the two, and as time went on, both made public statements that became increasingly shady. The fighting continues to this day, but the star's brief reconciliation for the VMAs couldn't have been procured by anyone but Madonna. Tensions were allegedly high during rehearsals, but neither turned away from the chance to perform with the Queen of Pop herself, on the VMA stage known for hosting some of modern pop music's most iconic moments, including Madge's first VMA appearance in 1984. Madonna's performance of Like a Virgin donned in a white wedding dress and a belt that said boy toy has become famous as the world introduction to Madonna's propensity to shock audiences. Her impromptu writhing on stage dressed as a virginal bride in pure white was seen in the 80s as scandalous. With Britney and Christina performing the same song 19 years later dressed in similar white gowns and the boy toy belt, they paid homage to Madonna's VMA legacy as a one-woman spectacle. The meta-appeal of the performance makes it almost a postmodern masterpiece. In 2003, Madonna and the VMAs were creating an homage to Madonna and the VMAs of 1984. After Like a Virgin, Madonna, Britney, and Christina go into the more recent Madonna single, Hollywood, a track that takes satirical jabs at celebrity culture, while the spectacle of the performance is enhanced by the fact that two of the greatest pop rivals of 21st century celebrity culture were dancing on stage together at the direction of a shared pop idol. Such self-referential work, which requires a knowledge of pop culture along with recent developments in the world of celebrity, has become prevalent in modern pop music. Beyoncé's 2016 album Lemonade was culturally significant for various reasons, one of which being the role the public's conception of Beyoncé's personal life played in the project's publicity and historical context. After cheating rumors challenged the power couple status of her and her husband Jay-Z, Beyoncé's music took the infidelity rumors head-on. Following Lemonade, Jay released his own record 444, which referenced multiple lyrics from Beyoncé's album. Then a few years later, the couple came together to create a collaborative project under the name The Carters, turning their private family drama into a three-act narrative for public consumption. Taylor Swift as well is known for expressing her feelings on personal matters within her songwriting. She doesn't just use her albums as musical diaries, she intentionally teases her audience with subtle references and clues to keep fans engaged with her work, constantly trying to figure out which public figures Taylor's juiciest lyrics are shading. The feud between Britney and Christina may have gotten heated at times, but neither of them incorporated their private battles into their music the way Taylor Swift and Katy Perry did. When Taylor and Katie made peace in 2019, hugging one another in Taylor's You Need to Calm Down music video, they profited off the years of publicity surrounding their known conflict. They knew what Madonna knew in 2003, casting Britney and Christina in the same performance. Audiences will be more engaged with a project if they can infer additional context, like a new development in celebrity interpersonal drama. Taylor attempted a similar move at the 2015 VMAs with Nicki Minaj following some back and forth between the two on Twitter that got a little tense. 
Their shared performance was ultimately underwhelming, though, since Taylor and Nikki's brief spat on social media was pretty minor and stemmed primarily from a misunderstanding. They hadn't let the conflict escalate enough to be mythologized, so the resolution of the drama was anticlimactic and mostly forgettable. Britney and Christina's feud had decades of buildup, with the two starting as childhood co-stars on the Mickey Mouse Club, then facing off at the 1999 Grammys as nominees for Best New Artist. Almost two decades after the 2003 VMA performance, the Britney-Christina feud continues, making that one time they both kiss Madonna even more iconic than it already was, if that's even possible. Bennett 27, Kill the Lights. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Our very own pop princess now, Queen of Pop, has a special announcement she would like to make. I rag on Circus sometimes for being the return-to-radio-friendly Britney, just made for her nice girl comeback, but musically, Circus is much weirder than I've been giving it credit for. Yes, there are songs like Circus and Womanizer that are just meant to be catchy pop hits, but there are others that get more into weirdney and a few that seem to be building from the sounds Britney was already experimenting with on Blackout. One of Blackout's more impactful producers, Danger, actually co-wrote and produced two songs on Circus, Blur, and this masterpiece, Kill the Lights. Sonically and thematically, Kill the Lights is like a cheeky continuation of one of Blackout's biggest singles, Piece of Me, with lyrics referencing Britney's battle with the media and paparazzi. Number 26, Clumsy. Also in the last episode, we talked a bit about the energy Britney exudes on the Glory album. After years of her artistry feeling stifled on records released during her 13 and a half year conservatorship, her latest album feels like a return to form in that Britney actually sounds like she's having fun. Clumsy, but I love how you go down at first and style it out again and again. <sighs> Clumsy is a great example. The blending of doo-wop hand claps, Britney's R&B-style vocal performance, and electronic production complete with a bass drop showcase the overlooked experimental ambition of Britney's most involved work. And Britney was heavily involved with the making of this album. Clumsy is really cool. This was done in the middle of the process of the record, and I wanted something really funky, and this trap came out of really nowhere and um, we brought it home. We got guys in the studio and we clapped at do si do and made it really bluesy and funky and did everything old school and real. Despite losing what seems like all creative control during the making of Britney Jean, Britney allegedly told Jonathan Ross during her interview on his talk show that she had to be strategic in order to produce Glory the way she wanted. According to members of the live studio audience, she said something along the lines of, Okay, so I have this conservatorship. I've been under this conservatorship for three years, and I felt like a lot of decisions were made for me. So I wanted Glory to be my baby, and I've been really strategic about it. Of course, because she even mentioned the word conservatorship, that part of the interview got cut before it actually made it to air. It's obvious, though, just from the quality of the record compared to her previous that Britney put more heart into Glory than anything else produced by her team after 2008. 
It's a shame then that her team dropped the ball so hard on the album's promo. Some of Britney's recent Instagram rants has indicated that even getting tracks from Glory added to her Vegas residency's set list was a struggle. In fact, while in Vegas, Britney's team only added two songs from the album onto the set list in August of 2016, Make Me and Do You Wanna Come Over. Slumber Party was later added in November. Two more tracks, Clumsy and Change Your Mind, were then added to Piece of Me in 2018 when the show was taken on a brief tour to oversee venues. Fans started a small Justice for Glory movement in 2020, but what sets that campaign apart from other fan-led missions to get justice for an underrated pop album, Glory's status as a flop in the eyes of the public has less to do with general audiences not appreciating the work, and more to do with Britney's team not caring to promote the album their artists worked hard to create. They exploited Britney's labor by profiting off her performing skills, then wouldn't even let her perform the songs she enjoyed the most. It's kind of funny because so many members of Britney's team were hardcore Christians whose attempts to control Britney were influenced by their adherence to religious dogma, more on that later, Yet throughout Britney's conservatorship, it seems that many of those same people did everything they could to ensure that they would be going straight to hell. But whatever, none of my business. Number 25, Me Against the Music featuring Madonna. Hey Britney, you say you wanna lose control. Come over here, I got something to show ya. Is it the strongest leading single of Britney's? No. But it's a significant song with just the alone fact that it's a collaboration with Madonna, Britney's most major pop predecessor. Then at number 24, You Drive Me Crazy, the Stop remix. I decided to put the Stop remix onto the list in place of the album version since they're too similar to justify separating them but the stop mix is still obviously superior. Stop! It just adds a level of drama. It's also the version used for the track's music video, so in a way, I consider it the official release. We have to stand this song as a major contributor to Britney's official establishment as a pop powerhouse in her first album era. Considering what a smash her debut single was, some assumed Britney's later releases couldn't possibly rise to the occasion of maintaining her new It Girl status. But her first album contains songs like Sometimes and You Drive Me Crazy that proved she'd never be able to be called a one-hit wonder. Britney's star power was so strong just mere months into her debut that the 1999 film Drive Me Crazy was renamed from its original title Next to You just to reference Britney's song that wound up on the film's soundtrack. The movie's two stars Melissa Joan Hart and that dude from The Devil Wears Prada also appeared in the track's music video. Both have since made statements about Britney's life at the time of the video shoot that were indicative of problems Britney would later face in even more dramatic ways. Melissa said of Britney, She, she looked at me, I said, went to her one day, like, let's go to lunch. And she was like, yes, let's, let's do that. And then someone over her shoulder is like, no, 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 you have to go to the gym and then you have to go mm. to, you know, you're a vocal coach and then you have to go um, do a press interview and then you have a fitting and then you have your show tonight. And then, you, and she's like, oh, sorry, I can't. So I was like, you know what, let's, you come over for dinner tonight. I'll, I'll come pick you up. So I snuck her out of the hotel and 
I took her to a club and I was like, let's go dancing. She's like, yeah, okay. And so, you know, I don't know exactly if that was the first time she'd ever been in a situation like that, but I think it was the first time it really, like, you know, in Hollywood, it really kind of caught her. The Entourage guy also tried to negotiate an interview with Britney for a documentary he was working on. You initially <laughs> didn't want to do the music video, but your team convinced you to do it. Are you glad you did it? Yeah, initially I didn't want to, uh, and, and doing the interview was the, the reason why, because unless I got the interview, I didn't want to do the video. Oh, I, I got of, it. I used, I used not being in it as a way to get the interview. I love that. Oh, was so smart. Politics, clever. politics, oh, early clever. politics. Yes. Um, wait a minute, what documentary did you do? Uh, it's called Shot in the Dark, and I went to find my estranged father. Oh, oh, yeah. that sounds good. Yeah. In fact, you can see the Britney Spears interview on the DVD extras of By the, the film. So what, oh, what place does tonight. Britney have in that in that search for your father? She has father issues. Wow. Daddy issues. Daddy issues. All right, thank you very much. I bought the DVD for the film just to watch Britney's interview, as I couldn't find it anywhere online at the time, and it was really a waste of my money. I've obviously never watched the movie, and the interview was incredibly short, seemingly taking place in between set changes for the crazy video before Britney is called back to continue filming. Going off what Melissa said about Britney's strict schedule, you can literally see Britney apologizing for how cut short her participation in the interview was as she was pulled back to set by her handlers. She doesn't say anything of note, really, in the interview. Given her image as a good girl next door from an all-American family, trashing her dad on film was probably not the smartest PR move for Britney, so she appealed to heteronormative values instead, speaking of the importance of a father's role in a child's upbringing that she doesn't even seem fully convinced of. Dave, Scott S. wants to know your favorite memory of being one of the first people to interview Britney Spears back at MTV. Oh, wow. It was, uh, I mean, she was clearly on the way up. Yeah, but also clearly, like, it was like she had a shot collar. Uh -huh. So it was just like, if she, she couldn't say anything remotely controversial. You right, know what I mean? Right. So you'd be like, hey, you know, uh, what time is it? And she'd be like, all day is terrific. Right. Like, every hour <laughs> is special in its own way. You know, I mean, it was just, she was right. very media coach. Without Britney publicly talking about the issues we now know she had with her father throughout her life, how did Adrian know she had, quote, daddy issues in the first place? Was it an open secret in the industry? Did he witness something himself that allowed him to know this firsthand? It's frustrating to know that even back in 1999, people knew that Britney and her father didn't get along and noticed that those profiting off of her work were micromanaging her schedule without giving her, a literal teenager, enough time to breathe and just exist as a human. Then, less than a decade later, she entered an arrangement overseen by her father where her schedule was even more coercive and cruel. But anyway, number 23, do something. That's what a whole bunch of adults should have been doing when Britney was in those positions. They should have done something. But whatever. Let's talk about the song. era immediately post-conservatorship termination, those who don't know about Britney's history on the internet have been surprised to see her recent candidness on Instagram as she processes the trauma of her last 14 years regularly through informal statements calling out her family and former members of her team. 
With fans getting such little interaction from Britney during her conservatorship, this radical change in her online content might be unnerving to those not used to actually hearing an unfiltered Britney. Before 2008, though, Britney was pretty involved in the discourse of her fandom, writing messages to fans somewhat consistently in a similar manner as her Instagram captions. In 2005, in the now discontinued Letters of Truth series on her website, Britney wrote a message to her fans talking about the making of the Do Something video, which she co-directed under the pseudonym Mona Lisa. I just shot a cute video for Do Something that I co-directed. As much fun as I had, I have to say I was a little disappointed that I still had to convince my record label that making this video was the right thing to do at this time. But in the end, I think everything came out great. I even came up with all the choreography and styled the entire shoot myself using Juicy Couture clothing. Co-directing this video was like an experimental project for me. I feel like being behind the camera is something more satisfying than being in front of it. Working on this video was my first taste into behind the scenes work, which I am excited about doing more of in the future. When a woman directs, I think it just alters the entire feel of the movie, production, or play in such a positive way. Speaking of, I've been working on writing and hopefully eventually directing a musical which makes fun of the whole Hollywood scene. It's appropriately titled, Hollywood. I really don't think we can undervalue how much control Britney was beginning to get over her career before she lost all legal control of her life. In 2004, she was directing her own videos and potentially writing and directing a new musical. Fast forward just a few years, she couldn't even sign her own contracts. But Do Something is still an underrated gem. Not only do we have the history of Britney's debut as a director, the song and video just feel like Britney. The song is quirky and playful, and the video finds a way to be sexy without taking itself too seriously. It's pop that's allowed to get silly. Then number 22, get naked in parentheses, I got a plan. I said last episode that Blackout is Britney's most personal album. That may sound weird since quite a few of the tracks seem to be about partying, having sex, and getting fucked up. And while not all the songs are about that, even those tracks were pretty authentically Britney for what she was up to at the time. I'm not ashamed of my beauty, you can see what I got. If songs like Get Naked sound like they should be played at a strip club, that's because Britney was hanging out in strip clubs. I really like a review that Pitchfork gave the album, where writer Tom Ewig compares Britney's changing image to the character Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks, the virginal prom queen who's discovered to have a secret life as a cocaine-dependent sex worker. Strange as it sounds, the comparison makes sense with where Britney was at in 2007 and how the media turned on her for no longer being the celibate schoolgirl of the Baby One More Time era. The author is specifically interested in Get Naked, and I want to read his closing paragraph. Get Naked, like most of Blackout, is superb modern pop, which could probably only have been released by this star at this moment. Britney's walking catastrophe makes for great car crash copy, and her record can fit into that if you want it to. But remember that what made Twin Peaks so great wasn't the central good girl gone bad story, it was the strangeness that story liberated. And Britney's off-disc life is both distraction from and enabler for this extraordinary album. I'll also emphasize the fact here that in 2007, Britney's last full year of freedom, 
She was literally hanging out in strip clubs, filming music videos in which she was topless, and singing songs with titles like Get Naked. Yet people still want to act shocked every time she posts a nude on Instagram now that she's resumed her life as a free woman. Bitch just likes being naked, and I don't understand the ungrateful fucks who want to complain about it. Free Titney. Number 21, the song where Britney invented dubstep, Freak Show. I'm only half kidding about that, by the way. Obviously, Britney didn't invent the genre, but she was one of the first mainstream pop acts to incorporate dubstep as well as other EDM elements into her work. Yet another reason that Blackout was ahead of its time. At number 20, Boys, the co-ed remix. Like with You Drive Me Crazy, I chose to include the remix instead of the album version since the remix is what's in the track's music video. Even though the video uploaded to Britney's YouTube says album version in the title. I don't know who fucked that up, it's not the album version. But the song is a good representation of the hip-hop influences on Britney's self-titled album. Both Baby and Oops are dominantly teen pop. You can tell that by her third release, Britney wanted to get away from that and branch out into other genres of music, working with production duo The Neptunes to help her expand her sound. You can hear Janet Jackson's influence on Britney here as well. Though Britney is often thought of as a Madonna prodigy, Janet's impact on Britney's music and performing style is perhaps even more significant than Madonna's. Then number 19, How I Roll, one of Weird Knee's finest. Rob Sheffield actually listed the song at number 3 on his ranking of Britney's songs for Rolling Stone, making it the highest ranking non-single in his article. What's most important about this song, though, is that it supports my belief that Britney needs to start working with some hyper-pop producers ASAP. Then number 18, Mannequin. This might actually be the weirdest song in Britney's discography, and it's incredible. Lyrically, it seems to be about taking what you want and not caring if it upsets someone else. It contains a reference to Britney's hit single, Oops, I Did It Again. We love a self-referential queen, especially when the reference makes sense in context. Oops is pretty much about someone being into you, but you not having romantic feelings toward them. Mannequin is about someone expressing their feelings to you and you not having any feelings at all. Now, Britney does have a writing credit on this song. I don't know if she added the Oops reference, but I hope whoever did is having an amazing day. Like many things in Britney's life and career though, this song does have some mysteries surrounding it. So before the 2008 VMAs, which Britney was attending, a secret rehearsal video was leaked onto the internet featuring Britney and her dancers rehearsing choreography for this song. Choreography, by the way, that Britney fucking killed. Like prime era Britney. At the time, Circus hadn't been released yet, so fans weren't even sure what the song was, but the footage immediately led people to believe that Britney was rehearsing for a performance at the VMAs. 
That never happened, and by the time the circus tour began, Mannequin was on the set list with completely different, and also inferior, choreography. Some people have speculated that the leaked video was a rehearsal for a music video that was never filmed. However, I highly doubt Mannequin ever had plans to be a single or receive a promotional video. It's just not something I could picture Jive wanting to service to radio. What likely happened was that sudden changes in Britney's professional team required them to scrap old dance routines that were the intellectual property of the circus tour's original choreographers, Andre Fuentes and Wade Robson. Both choreographers left the project allegedly after butting heads with Jamie Spears. So RIP to the original mannequin choreography, gone but never forgotten. Then at number 17, Toy Soldier. Yet again, more proof that Blackout is Britney's most personal album. This one's another fuck you to Kevin Federline. Now, Toy Soldier was never released as a single or anything. Britney hasn't even performed it live, but Ellen DeGeneres did play it on her show right before the album dropped. is the first time anybody's hearing that. That's Britney Spears' new album, Blackout, and that's the very first time anybody's heard that song. And uh, what's the name of that song I just asked for? Number Toy eight. Toy Soldier. Toy Soldier. That, I love that song. Really good. I love it so much. Say what you want about Ellen, but considering Britney did, like, no promo for this album, I appreciate Ellen trying to pull some of that weight. Maybe that's why she was so cranky. Can we look back? Is there any reports of Ellen being mean prior to 2007? Number 16, Do You Want to Come Over? Perhaps one of the biggest missed opportunities for a music video in Britney's career. Then number 15, Heaven on Earth. In the one interview Britney did to promote Blackout, she named this song as her favorite track on the album. Britney, which track on your album has uh, the most meaning to you? Which one is uh, the most meaningful? Um, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I really like um, Heaven on Earth. I think it's a cool track. It's like, I love the producers who did that, and it's kind of different from all the other songs, so probably that one. It's very vibey, very synth-pop. Circus had a few tracks that sounded like they could have easily been on Blackout's track list, like Kill the Lights or Mannequin. In my dream Blackout track list, though, Heaven on Earth would be immediately followed by our next track, number 14, Unusual You. Nothing about you typical nothing about you's predictable you got me all twisted and confused this song might truly be the greatest album track in britney's discography in 2005 lady gaga made her own top five playlist for itunes in which unusual you was featured she wrote of the track quote this is such a great song. I listened to Circus on the Plane, and when I got to this song, I stopped and played it over and over. It's so beautiful and so sad, and I love the way it has an eerie sonic quality. As if the music was put into a funhouse mirror. Go girl, great pop. Unquote. Unusual You is also a great representation for how effective pop music can transform something fairly basic into something sensational. If you look at the song's lyrics written out, they're standard fare. The first three lines of the chorus go, Baby, you're so unusual. 
Didn't anyone tell you you're supposed to break my heart? I expect you to, so why haven't you? As plain sentences, those are kind of clunky. The way the melody breaks these lines up, however, even placing unique inflections onto certain words, like turning baby into behaby, exemplifies how simple decisions can make basic phrases far more pleasing to the ear. Number 13, Breathe On Me. Okay, now this song actually should have been a single, and I'm not just saying that because I like it. Britney literally treats it like it is a single. It's been performed on TV multiple times, during the ABC special, at the Billboard Music Awards, on CD UK. I don't know why Slumber Party didn't get that treatment, but whatever. Every live performance Britney has ever done for this song is incredible. Although Azealia Banks is problematic, she did once say that this was her favorite Britney song, and honestly the bitch has taste. One thing I have to bring up is that the song came during a particular evolution in Britney's career. Of course, Britney's image was increasingly sexual with really every era up until 2008, and she was already somewhat of a sex symbol with songs like Slave For You on her self-titled album, but In The Zone is where we really start getting some hoe anthems. It's safe to say that people probably expected Britney to bring the sex appeal to her Onyx Hotel tour, but I have to imagine at least some of those in the audience were parents with their children, and I'm not sure that they expected to see performances quite as provocative as that of Breathe On Me, where Britney makes out with a male dancer in her underwear, or a Touch of My Hand where she simulates masturbation in a giant martini glass while wearing a nude bodysuit. Breathe On Me and the Onyx Hotel really cemented Britney's status as both a sex icon and an LGBT icon, as Britney danced sensually with male and female dancers during televised performances of the song, and had same-sex couples, again male and female pairs, grinding on each other during her tour. Britney's stage literally had more queer representation in 2004 than Marvel movies can manage in 2022. Britney really said, I think it's fine you're gay. At number 12, Break the ice. It's been a while. I know I shouldn't have kept you waiting. But I'm here now. The fact that this song isn't even in the top 10 is proof that I am not just going off of personal preference, because Break the Ice is my all-time favorite Britney song. First of all, the intro is iconic. Everything about it is incredible, it's so dramatic, like as she's speaking this fucking angelic chorus comes on like Britney's return to music is heaven sent, which it is. And the whole song works in the context of Britney's life as it was released in 2007 and sounds like an intense night of partying, moving through different sections of varying vitality. The last bit is especially interesting. 
Like the whole track is kind of fast paced until you get to this break where much of the instrumental drops out, leaving a few sparse beats and some harmonizing vocals. Then the song keeps going and you hear this kind of bird-like sound mixed in with the rest of the instrumentals. You should listen to it with headphones to get the full effect. To me, the whole section sounds like when you're at a party or a club or something and you're really drunk or high or both, and at first you're just going with it. You're on the dance floor with everybody else, moving at the same pace as the world around you, and then you sort of take a moment to slow down. You look around and realize exactly how fucked up you are. The world seems to turn for just a second until it snaps back, then does it over again. And it seems like everything around you is going weirdly slowly, like individual seconds are lingering just a little bit longer than normal. What that feeling sounds like to me is that fucking bird sound echoing through the end of this song. And it's perfect. Then number 11, Slave For You. I know I may be young, but I've got feelings too. To do what I feel like doing. So let me go and just listen. Another example of Britney's early ventures outside the world of teen pop being the first track the world would hear featuring her new collaborations with the Neptunes. The song also marked Britney's official transition out of her early career girl next door phase. Slave For You, the song, video, and every performance for the track oozed sexuality that couldn't possibly be considered incidental. With Baby One More Time, sure Britney was dressed up as a sexy schoolgirl, but if you asked her about that choice, she'd play coy, acting like it never occurred to her that her showing off her sports bra could possibly be viewed from a sexually suggestive perspective. If people thought she was too provocative, it certainly wasn't because of anything she was trying to do. Slave For You, though, was the work of a girl who was obviously horny at the very least, even if she was still publicly claiming celibacy. The Parents Association of America were so outraged by the track and its promotion that they called for a boycott of Britney and her music. And of course, we couldn't mention Slave For You without also talking about one of the greatest VMA performances of all time, Britney's 2001 appearance featuring a python and a live tiger. You know, people really don't talk enough about that tiger. The performance was iconic and is still continually referenced to this day, but Britney's coy denial of any additional subtext involved with the use of the python still demonstrates her slow tiptoe toward blatant sexual expression. You got a lot of bad press for that. Some people felt it was too suggestive. Did you expect that reaction? Honestly, no, not at all. I was just, you know, I wanted it to be all jungly because the whole I'm Slay For You, the song, it mm. kind of, you know, and um, I think it inquires a little bit of the... <laughs> no, it does. It has kind of the whole the jungle pretty... feel, you yeah, know? So jungle feel. Went. Okay, I was yeah. trying to get with that. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, when you are dancing with a python around your neck, <laughs> the whole idea is what? The python represents what? Um... Jungle, like at the very beginning, I'm, I'm, I'm in a cage and I had a tiger with yeah, me. I, yeah, I saw the whole thing. And so the python is just a whole part of the jungle field. Yeah, 
to make it very theatrical. Okay, it was very theatrical. Maybe Britney genuinely never considered the implications of a thick snake draped around her neck. But sexuality during this era was still expressed mostly through innuendo. Her work was increasingly suggestive, but it wasn't quite to the point of something like But let's move on to the top 10. At number 10, Overprotected. There's definitely a running theme in Britney's self-titled album. After back-to-back -back records barely out of adolescence, her third release acts as a sort of soundtrack for a real-life coming-of-age story. Fitting considering around the release of Britney, Britney the Person was finishing production on a coming-of-age movie. The opening lines to Slave For You reference feelings of belittlement due to being at a young age. Not a girl, not yet a woman deals with the liminal space between childhood and adulthood, and the album's non-singles as well, like Let Me Be, show Britney declaring a new adult independence. None of those songs go as hard, though, as Overprotected. Oh my god, she said damn. The lyrics are aggressively angsty, which was perfect for the time in Britney's life in which the track came out, having constant oversight from her family, her label, her managers, and the media along with a nosy public. Sadly, the sentiment of overprotected wasn't only appropriate for Britney's life in 2001. Seven years later, her ability to make her own mistakes was even more inaccessible to Britney under the legal guardianship of her father. Frustration she expresses in the 2009 MTV documentary for The Record echo the unrest in Overprotected. The way I feel, it's like they hear me, but they really not listening. It's like, it's bad. Do you feel out of control in your life? No, I don't feel like it's out of control. I think it's too in control. There's no excitement. There's no... There's no passion, there's no, like, it's just like Groundhog Day every day, you know. Our next two tracks contain a similar amount of foreshadowing. So at number nine, Mona Lisa. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a little story to tell About Mona Lisa and how she suddenly fell Strap in, we've got a lot to talk about for this one. So let's start from the beginning. Early 2004, Britney embarked on her Onyx Hotel tour, canceled early in mid-2004 due to the knee injury Britney suffered on the set of the never-finished Outrageous music video. After the cancellation, Britney got married, did the reality show thing, released a Greatest Hits album, and talked a bit on her blog, the aforementioned Letters of Truth, about how her knee injury helped her realize she needed a break. I understand now what they mean when they talk about child stars. Going and going and going is all I've ever known since I was 15 years old. It's amazing what advisors will push you to do even if it means taking a naive young blonde girl and putting her on the cover of every magazine. I know now that my knee injury gave out on me this past summer so that I would have no choice but to stop. My body was shutting down and needed rest. It's funny how the man upstairs works. 
Right now I have to go. I really want to watch Saved with Mandy Moore and reruns of Sex and the City. I want to enjoy all of the simple things that I missed over the past few years due to working way too much. Then in December of 2004, Britney called radio station KISS FM with the intent of getting a new song she'd written played on air. The hosts of course thought it was a prank. People as big as Britney Spears don't just spontaneously call into radio stations on their own time to play a song the label hasn't officially released yet. But an hour after the call, Britney showed up to the station with the demo of a song called Mona Lisa, which she had apparently made with her band during the Onyx Hotel tour. Britney Spears live in studio. Do you have to take a super secret CIA mission secure uh, route to Burbank from your crib so they don't get no. followed? I don't I didn't see anybody outside. I know, I it's there awesome. wasn't one camera anywhere. I know, it's great. How'd you pull it off? You I just, don't know, he just kind of snuck away. Did you put him a, a disguise on? <laughs> you just bring a gigantic guy with you. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Well, thanks for hanging tonight. While in studio, Britney reveals she's been working on a new album. Good luck with your album. It's untitled. It's, un it's probably going to be called The Original Doll. So. And it's half done? Yeah, it's halfway done right now. All right, so maybe by the summer, maybe yeah. by the fall. Yeah, maybe a little bit earlier. All right, well, more of her new song. On a couple days later, she composed another letter of truth and clarifies her original statements about taking a break, writing, I think I should rephrase myself from my previous letters when I was talking about taking a break. What I meant was I was taking a break from being told what to do. True masters say it's cool when you look at someone and don't know whether they are at work or play since it's all the same to them. The things I've been doing for work lately have been so much fun because it's not like work to me anymore. I've been even more hands-on in my management and the business side of things and I feel more in control than ever. We'll get to the content of the song later, but this is a really important point about the original doll as a whole. As much as fans defend Britney's autonomy in her career against people that imply she's just a pop music puppet, we can't deny that Britney's creative control over her work started at pretty minimal. She seemed to gain more control as eras went on, possibly peaking with In The Zone and Blackout, but her ability to make her own decisions has always been challenged. This is the same letter where Britney talks about directing Do Something, and even in this, where she says she was more hands-on than ever before, she complains of having to convince her record label into funding the video in the first place. Having control was still a struggle for her. This is sort of what fuels a lot of the mythology around the original doll. We don't know much about the album, but fans have long considered it to be Britney's lost magnum opus, where she was making the music that she liked, not the music her label wanted her to make, and not the music that fit best with her image. While Jive still claims to this day that the album was never internally scheduled, there are multiple people that have given statements about being involved in the sessions for the album. BuzzFeed has a really good article about the album, I'll link it in the show notes, where some of the people involved discuss specific tracks that were allegedly meant to be on the record. Like Look Who's Talking Now, a song about Justin Timberlake that was mentioned last episode. And there's another one called Take Off, which songwriter Michelle Bell called Britney's version of Michael Jackson's Black or White, saying, It was about being tolerant about gay people. It was gay people, discrimination, basically loving yourself and being connected. I think it was ahead of Lady Gaga. I think people would have looked at her and thought she had something to say. It was ahead of its time. It's not really known why the album was never released. 
Some people have speculated that it was internally scheduled, but Jive scrapped the project when Britney went rogue and released the demo for Mona Lisa on her own. I don't know if you'd scrap a whole album for that, but what do I know? Other people just think that Jive didn't like the record and didn't think it would fit her image. This theory's been supported by statements from Michelle Bell, who told BuzzFeed, I think maybe they thought it was not close enough to her brand. She wanted to make a record that was more vibey and more personal and honest. Some tracks assumed to be made for the original doll have leaked, like Take Off, which I played a clip from a second ago. Though it likely wasn't recorded for the original doll, a short snippet from the demo for the song Rebellion was posted on Britney's website, supposedly by Britney herself in 2006. The track's never been released in full, yet became a sort of anthem for members of the Free Britney movement during its revitalization around 2019. Rebellion is thought to have been intended for a release on Blackout, along with my favorite unreleased Britney track, All That She Wants, parentheses, Remembrance of Who I Am. The demo for that song features lyrics that only became more relevant with time, as Britney wrote some pointed shade at her own father-slash-future conservator. I'm gonna play the entire second verse, cause the whole thing is crucial. No more chains that you gave me Enough of pain, now I'm craving Something sweet, so delight Can you man stand sleeping at night? A silly pattern that I followed I saw my mama being swallowed By the one whom she loved He pulled her down, couldn't see her above Manipulation was his key He screwed it in cause she was naive They're not perfect, we must There's a treasure trove of unreleased Britney tracks that feature some of her most revealing songwriting, fitting a general pattern of Britney's truth being held just out of reach from her audience. Mona Lisa is the only song officially released by Britney that we know was intended for the original doll, though Someday and Chaotic are assumed to have also been on the tracklist, with all three of the songs being released on the Chaotic EP promoting Britney and Kevin's reality show. Now, because Mona Lisa is such a special track, we're gonna do something a little different for this one and tackle the lyrics line by line. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a little story to tell about Mona Lisa and how she suddenly fell. All right, Mona Lisa has become a pretty important name in the Britney universe. As I already mentioned, Britney co-directed her Do Something video under the name Mona Lisa. I'm sure you already know, the Mona Lisa is the name of the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci? Brittany choosing that title as her professional pseudonym tells me that she identifies with something about that painting's story. The Mona Lisa is not only one of the most famous paintings in the world, it's sometimes referred to as the most replicated piece of art in history. I don't know if that's really true, it seems impossible to actually calculate, but people have said it. And this theme of replication comes up in the following lines. The everyone knew her line again points to the fame of Mona Lisa. 
It is one of the most famous paintings in the world. Likewise, Britney is one of the most famous pop stars. Put a pin in the lines how she suddenly fell and I'm taken over, but we're going to move on to the chorus. This is where we get the most difference between the official version released on the Chaotic EP and the demo that Britney premiered on radio. Here's the demo. She's interested in the last lyrics there, cause she's gone. Death is a repeating theme in the publicly unseen work of Britney Spears. Two different music videos that we'll get into in a minute allegedly had original treatments which involved portraying Britney's death. So these lyrics on Mona Lisa's demo are a part of a long history of Britney referencing her own demise in a piece that was never officially released to the public. I don't know why the lyrics were changed in the official version of the song, maybe it was more label interference, or maybe Britney liked the changed lyrics better, but the official version of the chorus is this. prefer the original lyrics, the word lobotomized has been used to refer to the song's changes, but I actually like the official version more. They speak better to what I feel the song is actually about. So the line, she's the original, seems like a sort of reference to the title of the planned album, The Original Doll, and the line, she's been cloned, reflect back on what I perceive to be the theme of replication. Of course, some people have taken this into the more conspiratorial theories. I don't subscribe to any of those. Rather, I think the reason Britney refers to Mona Lisa here being cloned has more to do with her contextualizing her place in the world of celebrity, especially female celebrity. Britney is one of the most recognizable train wrecks of our time, but she's hardly the first. And I think Britney is really aware of that. In 2008, after Brit's breakdown era came to an end with the inception of her conservatorship, Rolling Stone published an article about her public downfall. One part I've never forgotten is the claim that in the midst of Britney's crisis, she became obsessed with the coverage on the recent death of Anna Nicole Smith, apparently convinced that she was, quote, next. In 2019, Britney posted some fan art of her in Marilyn Monroe with the caption, Sisters, such innocent hearts. Marilyn Monroe and Anna Nicole Smith were infamous train wrecks in the Times right before their deaths. And Britney connecting herself with their lives tells me that Britney is aware of her place in pop culture. She knows that she's not the first woman to be torn down and shamed, which goes back to the lines, now I'm taking over to release her from her spell. Britney is just the next girl we love to hate. Look, kid, throughout history, people have found it necessary to engage in human sacrifice. In ancient times, humans would commonly pick one lovely girl, adorn her with jewels, treat her like a goddess, and then watch her die. We Americans like to think we're more civilized now, 
But the truth is our lust for torture and death is no different than it was in gladiator times. Only difference is that now Americans like to watch people put to death through magazines and photographs. It's a damn shame, too. Old ways were better. Used to be we just picked someone by lottery and then stoned them to death. No, the American people don't want to stone people to death anymore. Best have the sacrifice kill itself. You mean everyone in the country wants Britney Spears to kill herself? Britney was chosen a long time ago to be built up and adored and then sacrificed for harvest. It's significant that Britney chose Mona Lisa as the original, considering Mona Lisa is just a painting. Like, we didn't even know the name of the model until 2005, long after it became known as the most famous painting in the world. Maybe I'm digging too deeply into this, but I think this gestures to how Britney views her own image. After their breakup, Justin Timberlake went on this weird campaign of slut-shaming and disparaging Britney publicly, permanently altering the way people thought of her. The event is when she went from America's sweetheart to train wreck, but Britney's public image has never been Britney. There's Innocent Baby One More Time Britney, there's Justin Slut X Britney, there's Trailer Trash K-Fed Fucking Britney, and more. But these are all just paintings of the real woman, who most of us will never really know even if we've seen her image everywhere. They're just paintings. And as we'll hear, Britney knows how the world wants to see her posed. One aspect of Britney's personality I don't think gets talked about enough is the fact that she does pay attention to celebrity culture and how her and other women are being treated within it, whether she's pointing out double standards. But um, I just think it's really funny, though, that, you know, just by me doing the baby video um, with right. my belly showing or whatever. I mean, I love Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, right. but when they're doing all those thrusts on the stage and when they're making out with the microphone thing, no one says anything about that. But right, when I'm exactly. just showing a little belly, it's everyone's like, It's the double like, standard. Guys can do you know whatever what I mean? they want. And girls got to be very careful. <laughs> right. Sympathizing with other women. They, they, they like to pick, have the person they pick on. I feel like I'm a target. And I feel like other girls, are. They, at a certain point in everyone's career, they'll get it. It starts to happen. Look at Jessica Simpson, for instance. They're being so rude to her right now. So we're split up with Nick. It's like this whole thing. Or questioning why she's been singled out for something. Have you, you seen... You know, I, I hate to bring this up, but Kate Hudson, she's 22, she's in sheets. Jennifer Lopez, she poses very provocatively sometimes. But Christina Aguilera, what's... What's the big deal when I do it? <laughs> like, come on! <laughs> you know? I don't understand. It's no surprise then that even before 2007, Britney knew that people wanted her to have a breakdown. She paid attention enough to know that her struggles were just entertainment for others. And that entertainment is cyclical. It didn't start with Britney, nor will it end with her. Hannah Montana's Miley Cyrus, though only 15 years old, is already on her way to being a major superstar. Looks like next harvest will be even better. Anyway, number eight. This is a story about a girl named Lucky. Like with Mona Lisa, there is definitely a premonition within this song. I don't know if it's something Britney was thinking about when she recorded it. 
The song was on the Oops album released only about a year and a half into her career, so this contemplation about being lost in an image or wondering what happens when a pop star stops winning was maybe on her mind, but not to the degree that I think it would be later. On the album, the song before it has an outro that introduces the topic of Lucky, so there is some tongue-in-cheek implications that maybe this is about the fame that Britney is starting to face, but record producers are still distancing Britney's persona from it. Hi, what's up? This is Brit, and I'm not in right now, so do your thing. Beep! <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yo, Brit, you're a nerd. You really need to change that message. Look, I was thinking about that movie we saw the other night. You know how she had all that fame and all that money. She still wasn't happy. Wouldn't that make a cool song? Lucky isn't told from the perspective of Britney like Mona Lisa is. It's a narrative of a different person, a character in a movie. Clearly, though, Britney does end up evoking this image of an unhappy starlet later in her career. After I've lied and told the whole world I'm okay and I'm happy, it's a lie. I thought I just maybe I said that enough. Maybe I might become happy because I've been in denial. I've been in shock. I am traumatized. You know, fake it till you make it. And mainly I didn't want to say it openly because I honestly don't think anyone would believe me. I thought people would make fun of me or laugh at me and say, she's lying. She's got everything. She's Britney Spears. Number seven, Stronger. So Britney the self-titled album is where Give No Fucks Me starts to really appear with Lonely, Cinderella, Let Me Be, etc. But the Oops I Did It Again album has moments of this burgeoning attitude that makes it a really good transitional album between Baby One More Time and Britney. One of the standouts is obviously Stronger. I said before that there's a submissive element to Britney's first album, like in Born to Make You Happy, where she's made out to be this meek and subservient girl who just wants to please her significant other, but that thankfully gets thrown out the window in following releases. There's still plenty of sappy teenage romantic ballads that feel left over from the Baby One More Time era. But there are also songs like Stronger that feel almost like a direct response to lyrical content of her first record. I mean, literally the line from Baby One More Time's title track, My Loneliness Is Killing Me, gets flipped to My Loneliness Ain't Killing Me No More, which is without a doubt the callback of the century. Normally, these sort of anthemic self-empowerment songs seem a little pandery and disingenuous to me, but considering how this track changes Britney's more compliant image, directly calls out some of her old lyrics, and represents a thematic shift in her music, I can do nothing but stan. Number six, the song we all knew was coming, Toxic. Baby, can't you see I'm calling? Other lists where people ranked Britney songs from worst to best, 
or some list that just ranked her singles because they're weak, to get an idea of what other people were saying, and like half of them put Toxic as number one. Bustle actually put Toxic as her second best single and left number one for Till the World Ends, which is a choice. But putting Toxic as the number one Britney song to me kind of outs you as a local. No offense to Rob Sheffield, he's been one of Britney's biggest champions in music journalism, so we all have our moments, I guess. It's not that hardcore Britney fans hate Toxic. I think we can all admit that it's a great song, but there is some resentment with how non-fans act like it's her only good one. It's been covered so many times. Glee did it twice. Baby, can't you see? I'm calling. A guy like you should wear a warning. Baby, can't you see? I'm calling. A guy like you should wear a warning. And if I see one more fucking tweet that says some variation of no more toxic people, only toxic by Britney Spears, I'm gonna lose my goddamn mind. That being said, its popularity alone sort of automatically earns it a high spot on this list. Even if it's not one of my personal faves, it's one of the most significant in her discography, especially considering the amount of bad press Britney was getting at the time. In 2002, Britney arrived late to a red carpet for her movie, Crossroads. Instead of taking extra time to greet fans outside the theater, which she's not obligated to do, she rushed inside and was then booed and accused of snubbing them. Later that year, she was booed by fans again after cutting a Mexico show short due to weather concerns. After the concert was canceled, the Mexican fans were yelling fraud. Mm -hmm. What did you feel like? Oh, I think it's kind of sad, you know. I. I did a show for them, you know, the night before, and I gave my all, and, um, actually they told us not to even go on stage at the very beginning before I even went out there, and I was like, no, we're here, you know, there's 50,000 people out there, I have to go out there and make an effort. And I understand actually all the people who bought tickets are going to get a refund? Yeah. In the same trip, she flipped off Mexican paparazzi, which was then portrayed as her flipping off Mexican fans. Okay, let's talk about the raising of the middle finger incident. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> well, I wasn't um, flipping off my fans at all. I love my fans. Do you regret having done it at all now? But I'm human, you know, and I mean, I'm not the type of person I want to go out and do anything crazy. I don't think, you know, flipping your finger is not the nicest thing in the world, but I think it was just me basically protecting myself. Then if Slave For You and her slightly more suggestive image didn't already get her deemed a slut and bad influence, the breakup with Justin Timberlake put the final nail in that coffin. Up until that point, Britney's marketing was based around a kind of good girl image. Around 2002-2003, that started to be challenged and she no longer had the clean reputation she once did. Britney was a flailing pop star who was getting booed by her own fans and disparaged by her ex. Especially with her first three albums, Britney usually came out with really good leading singles. Baby One More Time, Oops I Did It Again, Slave For You are all three some of her most legendary tracks. So when Me Against The Music came out for In The Zone, it didn't quite meet the standards set by her previous leads. 
It almost seemed like Britney's reign as the biggest pop star in the world was coming to an end. But in January of 2004, Britney released not only one of her most popular songs, but one of the most iconic music videos of all time. The song is also brilliantly produced, earning Britney the acclaim of critics along with her only Grammy Award to date. The Grammy Awards are bullshit though, Blackout wasn't even nominated for Album of the Year, which should be enough to invalidate the entire institution. Then number 5, Gimme More, maybe the best hoe anthem that has ever been created. Every time its entirety is the biggest progression away from Britney's other albums. If you lined up every cover from Baby One More Time to Glory, even then it stands out. Now I'm not gonna act like every album Brit put out before this was squeaky clean. She started her career by pushing some buttons and being a bit provocative, but there was always a plausible deniability to her work, as we discussed earlier. Yeah, with Baby One More Time, she was dressed as a sexy schoolgirl, but that wasn't meant to evoke any Lolita-like fantasies. She just tied up her shirt, no big deal. All the girls in Louisiana do it all the time. With the Slave For You VMA performance, the python didn't represent anything. It was just jungle-themed. Even Breathe On Me was sensual and suggestive, but that's all it was. It wasn't explicit, the sexuality was just implied. A song called Breathe On Me, which she tried to tell me is just about breathing. You really Please. think that's what it's talking about? It says I mean, that's what it says, it says breathe on me, I know what that's it says, it. I, I know what it says, but one of us wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> Do you really think that's all it's talking about? Well, I think it's supposed to get you in the mood. You know, like certain songs get you in the mood to feel a certain tension or a cer certain vibe. The most overtly dirty song pre-Blackout was probably Outrageous, which pains me to say since R. Kelly wrote it, but everything else was kept pretty coy. In the Zone might have been sexy, but Blackout was dirty. It was dark and a little gritty and slutty as fuck. It wasn't Breathe On Me, it was Get Naked. Gimme More Especially is a pole dance anthem, which as the first track and the first single for the album immediately sets Blackout apart from her previous and future work. Unfortunately, this song does have some negative baggage. First there's the video. The official version is just Britney dancing on a pole in a strip club while a different Britney watches her. It's a little confusing and messy and looks pretty hastily put together but it's allegedly not what was originally intended for the video. I mentioned earlier that two allegedly scrapped treatments for Britney's music videos contain depictions of her own death. This is one of them. The rumored treatment basically goes like this. Britney is at a funeral, presumably her own. She leaves midway through and is followed by some guy who eventually follows her into a strip club. Some of the legend is a little messy from here, but from what I've gathered, there are multiple Britneys in the club, and at one point, Britney is beating the other Britney while she's tied to a chair, and then one of the Britney appears to die. It then flashes back to the funeral, but the casket is empty, and the video ends with Britney in her bedroom, throwing her hat onto a bed. This is the treatment that sort of circulated around the internet on Britney blogs for a few years, 
So the specific source is unknown. I have my doubts as to whether or not this actually is true, but additional footage of the video did leak in 2015 that points to there being a plot to the original treatment that wasn't just Britney dancing around a pole. All the footage shows is her walking down a street in a black outfit and veil that is maybe supposed to be following the funeral? Then there's footage of her coming back to her bedroom and chilling with a cat. According to the makeup artist on set, despite this being Britney's own alleged treatment for the video, she sabotaged the shoot herself for unknown reasons and refused to perform the script for the director. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. This is just another mystery that Britney fans will ponder for years. If you're looking for trouble, Then there's obviously the 2007 VMA performance, which is a different kind of iconic and also shrouded in mystery. The performance was possibly intended to be something different from what it was. Rumors of a Chris Angel collab went around for a bit, but clearly those plans either fell through or didn't ever exist. I shouldn't have to go into the actual performance with too much depth. It was infamously bad, so I'm assuming you're already familiar. But there are a lot of theories as to what happened here. She was maybe out partying too much the night before, she was maybe doing shots in her dressing room before the show, some people have tried to blame Sarah Silverman for an insensitive joke Britney heard about her in rehearsals, she allegedly fired her hairstylist 30 minutes before the show and had to get Nelly Furtado's stylist to quickly put in her extensions. She allegedly refused to wear her planned outfit right before the show because it was too hot, so she found a smaller black bra and panty outfit right before going on stage. There were rumors that she skipped all her rehearsals, but the dancers working on the performance have claimed that that wasn't true, and there's since been leaked footage of her at multiple rehearsals, so definitely not true. Whatever happened, a lot of people thought this performance was a career ender, but it wasn't. Not only did Britney's career go on with astounding success, the song Gimme More has become one of her most memorable hits, especially its now famous opening line. It's Britney, bitch. In 2020, Miley Cyrus did a backyard session cover of the song, which I enjoyed. Every time we turn the lights down, just wanna go that extra mile for you. But I was kind of annoyed with the amount of people in the comments saying things like, I love how she transformed this song and made it super dark. Like, I'm sorry, but did you not listen to the original? It was dark as shit, along with sexy as hell, the perfect encapsulation of Britney's work. At number four, the song that started it all, Baby One More Time. <laughs> This song is monumentally important to Britney's career and the revival of teen pop in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's easy to see why. The song is catchy, the piano riff at the beginning is so iconic, the harmonies are insane, and Britney's vocal performance illustrates exactly why she's the princess of pop. Oh, baby, baby, the reason I breathe is you. 
Boy, you got me blinded. The little growls, the deliberate breathiness, the emphasis on specific syllables. Like, she was 16 when she recorded that. The video is well set Britney apart from the rest of the pop girls and boys of the time. With her talent as a dancer, her skills as a gymnast, her natural charisma in front of a camera, and of course the controversy surrounding her wardrobe, dressed as a sexy schoolgirl complete with pigtails, knee-high socks, and a whole lot of fabric not covering her torso. Now, the legend around this video has always been that it was Britney's idea. The original treatment was supposed to be an animated sort of Power Rangers-inspired video, and Britney was the one to put a stop to that nonsense and suggest that it should instead be something kids her age could relate to. Supposedly, every piece of wardrobe was bought at Kmart for less than $17 each, also Britney's idea. I will not detract from Britney's own genius here. I do think she had a lot to do with the production, and I do think that without her input, neither the song or video would be the huge successes that they now are. However, this was still a young girl, a minor, wearing an incredibly suggestive outfit that not only sexualizes her, but sexualizes her specifically as an underage girl. In addition to Britney, I also stand Marina, formerly Marina in the Diamonds, and I want to read a little bit from an interview she did with the Huffington Post during her Electra Heart era on her own love of Britney. Marina. Britney Spears is a big influence. Huge. I think people thought I was joking about that for a long time. But when I was a teenager, there was a very genuine connection with this sweet girl who also had this very sexual side that people didn't really want to accept. Interviewer. Totally. She came right out of the gates with Baby One More Time. Marina. Oh my god, and it was her idea. This is the thing, Britney is really smart. And in that way, she inspired Electra Heart. If you step back from all the cynical stuff, it actually focuses on the idea of innocence being mixed with darkness. For some reason, I really liked that combination. I suppose because you don't really connect innocence with darkness, it's like a formula that no one can refuse. I remember seeing an interview with Madonna in the 80s, and she was talking about how everyone is so attracted to the whole virgin whore complex, and that is exactly Britney. She mixed those elements so perfectly. Now again, I stan Marina, but I find the reframing of Britney as a secret genius provocateur a little problematic and maybe not totally honest. Britney is a genius, that part is true. And there were Madonna whore-like ideas present with Baby One More Time and Britney's whole early career. Britney was portrayed as both a pure, virginal kid and also a sort of seductress. But here's the problem. Number one, I don't know if Britney completely realized that she was playing with this dynamic when she did it. Every time the video's most iconic outfit has been brought up, she's played it off like, but I didn't do anything wrong, I just tied up my shirt, it's no big deal. Maybe that was her playing coy and being a secret marketing genius, or maybe she was a 16-year-old girl who genuinely didn't think it was a big deal and didn't know how the video was going to come across. I don't think Britney was unaware that she was being sexy. Marina is right in that Britney had a sexual side that people didn't want to accept. Most teen girls have a sexual side that people don't want to accept, which is why it's so important to acknowledge that there are healthy and unhealthy ways for us to encourage young girls to express themselves sexually. 
We accept that teen boys are horny weirdos, and they're empowered to express their desires in a way that doesn't reduce their power. How many teen comedies starring boys from the early 2000s directly centered around the teen male's desire to get pussy? The answer is a lot. Guys are assumed to be interested in sex no matter their clothing, appearance, or demeanor. Girls are only recognized as sexual beings when they express sexuality more overtly. Especially in the 90s and early 2000s, for someone like Britney to be seen as potentially interested in sexual congress, she had to don outfits that showed a little skin or flirted with the idea of promiscuity. Now there's nothing wrong with that. I was constantly getting in trouble as a teenager for wearing clothes my parents and the faculty members at my high school found too revealing, but I know that I felt incredibly frustrated to have the expression of my sexuality constantly policed even when I wasn't trying to be sexual. This is a little personal, but I remember one time going camping with my parents and another family we were friends with. When we got to the site and went to greet our friends, the father from the other family quickly made a comment to my dad about the length of the skirt I was wearing. Like, I can't believe you let your daughter out like that. I'd never let my Sarah even own something that short. And yeah, it was a short skirt. All of my skirts are short. It was also the middle of summer and all I was wearing on top was like a t-shirt. I wasn't trying to be sexy and cute, I was just trying to be comfortable. Must my sexuality be so repressed that I can't even exist in a state that might be considered arousing to someone else? I felt so restricted from expressing myself sexually all the time that I consider myself extremely lucky for never finding myself in a situation in which someone with dubious intent decided to validate my sexuality in ways I wasn't prepared for. Teen girls are horny, most of them at least. That doesn't mean they understand the full implications of sexual activity. Underdeveloped minds are vulnerable to manipulation, but young girls are taught to view the approval of adult men as validating to their own maturity. Britney Spears likely understood that the way she was dressing in the Baby One More Time video was a bit provocative and alluring. I'm not so sure she understood, though, that the pigtails and schoolgirl uniform were specifically going to fetishize her sexuality as an underage girl. Even if the outfits were Britney's idea, the adults around her should have known better than to let a 16-year-old girl show off her red bra dressed like a student in a private Catholic high school. And the fact is, Britney's own words have contradicted the framing that portrays her as a secret genius playing with the provocative elements of her age and sexuality. In her 1999 Rolling Stone interview, she straight up said, quote, I don't want to be a part of someone's Lolita thing. It kind of freaks me out." Unquote. I don't think Britney was someone who thought, I'm gonna get more press and promo by appearing sexually provocative in my videos while still retaining the innocent appeal of my underage youth. I think she was a 16-year-old girl who tied up her shirt thinking, this looks kind of cute, while the adults around her decided, yeah, that's fucking hot. She'll sell way more albums like that. Let's keep filming. And that's really gross. I of course have to extend this rant by also discussing the 1999 Rolling Stone photo shoot, with Britney on the magazine's cover in lingerie, holding a Teletubby at 17 years old. This is another event that has a legend around it that's maybe a little more empowering to an underage Britney than it should have been. 
David LaChapelle, the photographer, says that they were working on that cover shot. And Britney's manager came into the room and said, oh, oh, oh no, 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 more clothes. And Britney said, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, this is just a little bit too much. And the manager left the room and she said to David LaChapelle, lock the door. Let's do this. There are some problems with this story. Number one is, again, no matter what Britney said she wanted at the time, there were still way too many adults that had to approve of this photo shoot for it to both happen and to be published in a widely read magazine. These people should have thought about the implications of putting a then 17-year-old girl on the cover of a magazine in her underwear holding a stuffed animal. The idea that it was Britney's idea has been a tool that Britney's team has used to escape accountability for their own actions for years, including in the conservatorship where any criticism of the fact that Britney was a conservatee with a heavy work schedule was met with the claim that, oh no, it was Britney's idea to do a new album. Was it Britney's idea to do The X Factor? I doubt it. Anyway, again, Britney's words contradict this story. In an interview for British GQ, she said of the photo shoot, quote, David LaChapelle totally tricked me. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And to be totally honest with you, at the time I was 16, so I really didn't. I was back in my bedroom and I had my little sweater on and he was like, under your sweater a little bit more. The whole thing was about me being into dolls. And in my naive mind, I was like, here are my dolls. And now I look back and I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? Unquote. Look, this photo shoot and Baby One More Time, the video, as a Britney stan and a fan of pop culture, I can't say I'd really take those moments back. I sort of like that they exist because they're iconic, but I can't say that they should exist. Someone, meaning literally any adult with control of the situations, should have stopped these. But I'm also kind of glad they did it because they're legendary. But honestly, this is what being a Britney stan is about. It's always been complicated and there's always been a frustrating back and forth between loving Britney's iconography and wondering if what it took to create that iconography was really a good thing. There have always been hints of exploitation and dishonesty and questions about if the people legally responsible for Britney are actually acting in her best interest. Even David LaChapelle's involvement here is complicated. Reading Britney say that he tricked her and having that image of him telling an underage girl to undo her sweater a little bit more is so gross and creepy and bad. But he was also one of the first people who worked with her and her team to speak openly about Free Britney and criticize how her own team treats her. So I can't say that he's had a negative influence over her whole life. Moving along, number three, oops, I did it again. I was a little hesitant deciding which would rank higher on the list, oops or baby. They both are two of Britney's most massive hits, which established her as an emerging pop icon. They also sound pretty similar to one another, so which one is actually better is hard to decide, but my heart was telling me to go for Oops. Baby is the song in the album that launched her, 
and it's one of the most successful and impactful debut singles of all time, but Oops is maybe equally important to Britney's career as it proved she had longevity as a pop star beyond her first big hit. I mean, of course, Britney wasn't a one-hit wonder. The Baby One More Time album had plenty of successful singles besides the title track, but there was still a lingering attitude that Britney would fizzle out after her first record. The fact that her following album debuted at number one, had a killer leading single, and both the song and the album were called Oops I Did It Again? Like, ugh, her power. Then of course, the performance of this song at the 2000 VMAs established Brit as the new queen of MTV thereafter. As I've been saying throughout the episode, the Oops album contained a few of the more independent Striving Britney songs, bringing her away from the good girl image of her first album with songs like Stronger and What You See Is What You Get. Honestly, the title track is an underappreciated example of that as well. Baby One More Time was about having an attachment to someone else and wanting them back. Without them, Britney was losing her mind. Her loneliness was killing her. Oops is the opposite. It's about someone else having an attachment to Britney, but Britney doesn't really feel the same way in return. It kind of implies that she is at the very least flirting with this guy, maybe full on hooking up with him, but then he caught feelings and now her fun is ruined. Since Britney was still publicly claiming to be a virgin, this was a daring track. The first album built her up to be this cute, innocent little girl who's dancing in a sexy schoolgirl outfit but maybe doesn't know how sexy she is. Then the chorus of Oops I Did It Again literally states, I'm not that innocent. It's just fucking powerful, man. Britney was already contradicting the image she'd constructed just months before. You can't tell me she isn't the most interesting pop star to ever live. Ugh, and here we are at the final two. Are you nervous? Let's do a drum roll just to really drag it out. Number two, Piece of Me. act like Britney's behavior in 2007 was totally fine or not implicative of a serious psychological problem, but I do want to reframe it a little away from the overly simplistic Britney had a breakdown thinking. We've discussed before that Britney's image really started to change around 2002-2004, mostly with the breakup with Justin Timberlake and all the fallout from that. Then you add a shotgun wedding in Vegas, a failed reality show, a marriage to Kevin Federline, a messy divorce, and Britney's image started to reach an all-time low. People were calling her trailer trash, paparazzi mobbed her to the point that she could barely walk through the street. When she stumbled even the slightest bit while holding her child, she was called a bad mother. As she started going out to nightclubs with Paris Hilton, it wasn't long before Britney started to be portrayed as a total mess. In February of 2007, on my birthday, Britney went into a barbershop and shaved her head in full view of paparazzi. There were a lot of theories as to why. 
She allegedly complained about her extensions being too tight and apparently later said she just wanted people to stop touching her. Some people have claimed she did it to avoid being drug tested through hair strands, but that doesn't explain why she chose to do it so publicly, knowing that people were taking her photo. Of course, the prevailing theory is that she just lost her mind, but the most reasonable explanation that I've heard is from Brittany herself. Like I was going through so much artificial stuff with my kids and with Kevin and all that stuff at the time and he just left me and I was devastated, you know? And um, people thought that it was me like uh, going crazy and stuff like that, but people shave their heads all the time, you know? But I mean, I was going through a lot, but it was just kind of like me just feeling a form of a little bit of rebellion or feeling free or, you know, shedding stuff that had happened, you know? Why did you not tell anyone that's what you were doing? Did huh? you, why did you not tell anyone that's what you were doing? I don't think it was anyone's business, really. Again, I don't want to undervalue the evident emotional struggles Britney was clearly facing at this time, but there was something cathartic about the 2007 era. Britney had been under the control of other people for so long. She started her career as a child. Even once she reached adulthood, her label became restrictive of what she could or couldn't put out. She always had to maintain a certain image. When she actually started getting more control of her life and career, her public image took hit after hit being torn apart in every way, from her weight to her hair to the way she cared for her kids to the way she dressed. It would only be natural for someone in her position to snap. Britney shaving her head has become the most persistent image of her breakdown, but it's not even the most alarming thing to happen in her during that era. I would say her two involuntary psychiatric holds were a little more concerning, but bald Britney is the image we have all become fixated on. Since 1998, she was the pristine blonde pop star, a male gaze fantasy, always cute, always sexy, but in a non-threatening way, the perfect embodiment of society's standards for women. In 2007, Britney didn't conform to those standards anymore, nor did she really seem to care to. Think back, 2007 was the same year that private photos of Vanessa Hutchins were leaked onto the internet through no fault of her own. Then Vanessa, who was working for Disney at the time and probably had to release statements like this, said through a rep, I want to apologize to my fans whose support and trust means the world to me. I am embarrassed over this situation and regret ever having taken those photos. I am thankful for the support of my family and friends. Now think about when paparazzi snap pics up Britney's skirt while she was wearing no underwear. Was there ever a statement put out from Britney apologizing for getting caught going commando? No. She never apologized for it because she knew she wasn't the one in the wrong. Instead, in the Piece of Me video, she mocked the incident by calling the paparazzo that took the pic a perv. Britney was unapologetic about everything. When she attacked a paparazzo's car with an umbrella, she sarcastically wrote on her website, quote, I apologize to the pap for a stunt that was done four months ago regarding an umbrella. I was preparing my character for a role in a movie where the husband never plays his part, so they switch places accidentally. I take all my roles very seriously and got a little carried away. Unfortunately, I didn't get the part, unquote. Piece of Me is pretty meta in its commentary on Britney's place in the media, but like with her Letters of Truth, Britney doesn't apologize for her spurned reputation. She defends herself in the court of public opinion by taking her new Batgirl persona on sarcastically. I'm Mrs. Let's have a 
Yet again, we can find parallels between how Britney addressed her celebrity narrative and the often self-referential work of Taylor Swift, who released her own piece of me in 2016 called Look What You Made Me Do. The world moves on another day, another drama, drama. But not for me, not for me, all I think about is karma. I want to play the choruses for both because I think the two songs, while I wouldn't say they sound alike, have a similar pattern in the lead vocals. Britney and Taylor stay roughly around the same note for most of the melody on the chorus. Sorry, that was the cleanest acapella version I could find for that song. Now, neither vocal performance could be classified as rapping, but they are approaching a spoken word style more than they're attempting to be super sing-songy, if that makes sense. There's not a lot of melodic motion during certain parts of the track, which makes the lyrics sound more direct. Like on the bridge for Look What You Made Me Do, it's still a lot of the same, but there's comparatively a larger variety in the notes Taylor's hitting, which makes it sound slightly more cinematic. But I got smarter, I got harder in the nick of time. Honey, I rose up from the dead, I do it all the time. I got a list of names and yours is in red underlined. I love Taylor, especially her ability to engage her fans through Easter eggs and references to her public narrative, but Look What You Made Me Do doesn't work nearly as well as Piece of Me. Some of that is just about the song itself. The repetition on the chorus, for instance, doesn't work for a line with so many syllables, and for the way the song is structured, I don't think the anticlimactic anti-chorus is super effective. But in addition to that, Look What You Made Me Do and Peace of Me highlight the differences between the public downfall of both pop stars. Britney's was one of pure chaos, in which the woman at the center of the media spectacle was pretty much helpless to either control or evade it. Britney may have been self-aware of her place in pop culture and the public's hunt to watch her fall, but nobody had ever really experienced the ferociousness of 21st century celebrity culture the way Britney did in 2006 and 2007. It was unprecedented, with Britney's slip into infamy happening at a particular moment in entertainment media's history. The 1990s were already being referred to as the tabloid decade before they were even officially over, and the appeal of watching celebrity drama unfold as entertainment didn't die off as folks entered the new millennium. Physical tabloids were still very much a thing in the 2000s, and alongside them came the advent of the internet with its increasing popularity and accessibility for the average American. Online newspapers and entertainment sites like TMZ, X17 Online, and Just Jared created an increased demand for celebrity coverage by offering what paper journals couldn't, real-time updates. New paparazzi photos and videos could be uploaded online almost immediately following their captured moments. And blog sites like Perez Hilton provided readers fresh commentary which made the act of mocking celebrities feel communal. 
people saw the photos of Britney shaving her head and talked about it with their friends in a similar way to folks today live-tweeting episodes of Euphoria. For producers working within the 24-hour news cycle, celebrity drama was no longer too petty for coverage on platforms like CNN. Brit had magazines, websites, serious news programs, and the overall general public weighing in on her private life every time she walked out the front door. Without giving anything away, you live in a house that's surrounded by a fence, you have a gate, mm -hmm. you've got security, not a person, mm -hmm. you've got a detail mm -hmm. of people who are here all the time. Without that, you would feel vulnerable here. Oh yeah, definitely. And I still have helicopters that come twice a day. Just trying to get a picture of you mm -hmm. with the pool or you with Just anything. Sean? Yeah. And they put the captions on their magazines, baby in danger and stuff like that, which is really silly, but I wouldn't be in danger if I didn't have like this, you know, this impactful thing around me all the time. And I just feel like the editors, they don't realize that there's not just one magazine. There's other magazines and they're all paying to get a story. And I think that the energy from the people is getting, it's kind of scary, like I can't really leave my home right now. You might be thinking how disgusting the people who followed her everywhere with cameras were, and you wouldn't be wrong, but those photographers could make anywhere from 250 capturing a mundane moment, like Britney running some uneventful errands, to hundreds of thousands of dollars for a cover-worthy snap of her on a bad day. And anyone who's being followed by hordes of men anytime they go out is gonna have a lot of bad days. Of course, there would always be someone willing to put in that work to make that money. In 2007, X-17 said it made 30% of its revenue from photos of Britney alone. In 2008, Entrepreneur.com estimated that photos of Britney made up about 20% of the entire paparazzi business. In January of that year, a Los Angeles bureau chief for the Associated Press sent out an internal memo to the AP's staff saying, quote, Now and for the foreseeable future, virtually everything involving Britney is a big deal. Unquote. A few days later, it was reported that the AP had already drafted Britney's obituary. An editor for the entertainment division said, quote, We are not wishing it, but if Britney passed away, it's easily one of the biggest stories in a long time. I think one would agree that Britney seems at risk right now. Of course, we would never wish any type of misfortune on anybody and hope that we would never have to use it until 50 years from now. But if something were to happen, we would have to be prepared." Unquote. It's not totally uncommon for publications to have obituary templates prepared. Especially for older celebrities, reporters know to be prepared for the inevitable. But Britney was only 26 at the time. And even for people on their deathbed, it's not really normal for an organization to announce that they're actively primed and ready for you to kick the bucket. Can you imagine the horror of finding out the Associated Press is in interviews talking about how they have your obituary drafted? They're just waiting to fill in the dates? That's the world Britney Spears was living in, and no one had experienced that kind of fame before or after. Shortly following the worst of Britney's abuse by the media, laws were passed in California to regulate paparazzi behavior on public streets. In LA, a law colloquially referred to as Britney Law prohibited paparazzi from getting within 20 yards of the subject of their photos. Culture has also obviously changed regarding paparazzi and the stalking of celebrities along with the expectations for how platforms cover celebrity scandals. We're a touch less misogynistic, racist, homophobic, etc. 
and that makes the world of difference for how we talk about basically everything, including celebrities. Taylor Swift and her contemporaries had it easier than Britney Spears did just for the environment they rose to prominence within. But still, Taylor Swift has fallen under intense scrutiny multiple times, scrutiny that's often misogynistic and unfair. The nature of Taylor's celebrity, though, has helped her. She came into the game ready to engage with it as it is, a game, or more accurately, a sport. People throw around the word calculated with Taylor a lot, but the only thing wrong about that label is the negative connotation attached to it. Taylor Swift is very calculated about her celebrity persona and the way she engages with the public. It's a part of her art just as much as her lyrics are. So when the inciting incidents for Look What You Made Me Do occurred, I won't downplay the emotional distress of seeing Taylor Swift is over-party trending worldwide, but the control Taylor always exercised over her career left her in a better position to handle the backlash. Britney had to lose her legal rights and basically go into lockdown inside her house with her management reshaping her public image to resemble the persona of her teen years. Taylor just integrated the new drama into the same Easter egg style of writing she'd been using on breakup songs since the beginning of her career. And that's why Look What You Made Me Do doesn't quite work the way it should. It has elements that are a touch too cinematic. The audience is aware that Taylor is playing somewhat of a role, trying to act like a villain, albeit unconvincingly. Despite being a master at autobiographical songwriting, multiple songs on Reputation feel emotionally inaccessible as Taylor regularly eschews true vulnerability. Even her genuine anger gets lost within the theatrics. Peace of Me and the entire Blackout album are triumphs because, even amongst all the autotune and dance beats, Britney's annoyance is palpable and raw. She doesn't need to add a pre-chorus crescendo to evoke a movie villain persona. She just has to sing her plight over the same kind of beat paparazzi could find her dancing to at a nightclub. This is why I find the comeback narrative of Britney Spears so aggravating. Her artistic peaks were never created at the time she was on her best behavior. They were created when she said fuck it to the concept of having a public narrative to begin with. Blackout Britney writhed around in the filth of her soiled reputation instead of trying to transcend it. And finally, the grandest of all grand finales, the last song, which you might have already gathered just from the process of elimination, so... Number one... Every time. Notice me. Take my hand. While we strangers win. Don't get mad at me. I know there's some fan fatigue with this one. Much like stands want to stop hearing the locals gush over Toxic, there's some slight resentment directed toward this track as the one ballad Britney consistently performs live. This doesn't stop the song from being pretty and well written though. And like I emphasized at the beginning of this series and restated at the start of this episode, the ranking here is not solely about the quality of the track on its own, but the significance it plays in Britney's story and the meanings we can infer from its existence. In my expert opinion as a Britney Spears scholar, Every Time is the most important song in the Britney Spears discography. This is where we get to really dig into the crimes of a Mr. Justin Timberlake. 
Yeah, I know I've mentioned him and his betrayal of Brittany multiple times throughout these three episodes, but until now, I've only scratched the surface of how incessantly that man worked to humiliate our girl. So let's go back. It's hard to say when exactly Brittany and Justin became an official couple. When Britt first came onto the scene with Baby One More Time, she was dating a boy from her hometown in Kentwood, Louisiana, named Reg Jones. According to Reg, Brittany's mom Lynn informed him that Brittany would be claiming to be single to the press as it worked better for her professional image. At some point during 1999, Brittany and Reg broke up. Rumors spread that Brittany had begun seeing Justin Timberlake from NSYNC soon after the two confirmed their relationship. It might have been optimal for Brittany to pretend she was single while dating a random guy from Louisiana, but the pairing of Brittany and Justin was like a Hollywood fairy tale. They worked in the same industry, performed the same style of music, and most importantly, had a history with one another. So I hear Justin was your first kiss? Yes, he was my first kiss. And how that happened? Yes. Um, we were playing, oh my goodness, <laughs> we were playing Truth or Dare. Uh-huh. And we were listening, oh, oh my gosh, we, and we were listening to Janet Jackson. Okay, and you were how old? Ooh, I think 12. 12, yeah, okay. Yeah. And his friend um, dared him to kiss me, so that was my first kiss. First kiss? Yeah. And so at 12, though, you, you know. <laughs> Childhood crushes turn teen pop sensations turn dazzling power couple. My feelings toward Justin Timberlake in retrospect aside, this was a cute pairing and I can't deny that. Their public appearances as a couple were also pretty spectacular, like the time they wore matching denim apparel on the red carpet at the 2001 American Music Awards. Eventually, Britney and Justin moved in together, their dual star power and charm making them a celebrity couple it was hard not to root for. But around March of 2002, it was announced that Britney and Justin had broken up. At first, neither said much about the split, but by June, Justin was opening up about the emotional turmoil of the breakup, telling People Magazine, quote, You get to the point where you're crying yourself to sleep at night. I feel like I'm in the middle of a soap opera. I honestly know what it's like to have a broken heart now. Unquote. Even being crowned the most eligible bachelor by People Magazine had him acting all mopey, saying, quote, I guess to be the most eligible bachelor, does that mean I'm a loser? I didn't ask for this position, but I'm gonna deal with it." Unquote. Like, my god, you could just say thank you. Rumors were still swirling about why the breakup happened. The Mirror published claims that Britney had found another singer, Tanya Mitchell, in Justin's bed. Like Britney, Tanya had opened for NSYNC on tour and also had a similar look and sound to Britney. Last episode, we talked about the possibility that the song Liar on Britney's album Glory was about Justin Timberlake and their breakup. Could the Glory track Just Like Me also be about Justin and his betting of Tanya Mitchell? I don't know. I'm just here to start trauma. Anyway, years later in 2006, Justin said about Britney in an interview with GQ, quote, I felt like she had a couple of opportunities to just sort of stick up for me, and she didn't. Which is fine, but at the time, you know, I fought back. And that's the way I fought back. I used my mind. I came up with Cry Me a River. Unquote. Suspicions aimed at Justin were quickly turned around when he himself began implying that Britney had been the one to cheat when she hooked up with their shared choreographer, Wade Robson. 
Some fans believe the allegation that Britney cheated, but assert that Justin was the original cheater, implying that Brit's affair was an act of revenge or just an effort to quell her own pain. In a mysterious Instagram post, Jamie Lynn Spears once sang, Who's to say if she's referring to Justin Timberlake? But it adds to the narrative many fans want to uphold, especially as an attempt to counteract the narrative Justin Timberlake pushed in the media in mid to late 2002. On November 25th, Justin released his first big hit as a solo artist, the aforementioned single, Crimea River. You were my son. You were my earth. You didn't know all the ways I loved you. reference a lover's betrayal, and if you couldn't already guess who the song was about from that, Justin cast a Britney Spears lookalike in the music video to play his cheating ex-girlfriend. Britney stayed mostly quiet, but was clearly hurt by her ex's retaliation. When did you see it for the first time, the video? I saw it. I was on vacation, and uh, someone called me and told me that it was going to come on, and I watched it, and I was just like, I was kind of in denial, like I went in this whole denial phase or whatever, but it's, it's fine, that's the way he, I don't want to judge him or anything like that, because that's the way he had to deal with what happened, and, you know, and that's fine, but I just, I know that if I was in a relationship and something happened, I, I just, I couldn't really go there, but it's all good. Let's talk about something else. The call he made about Crimea River, what lesson do you learn from that? I guess to really look out for yourself. Just to look out for yourself. It got worse from there. In interviews, Justin revealed that Britney was no longer a virgin despite her public claims of celibacy. There was like talk about our, what we did together and like really sexually, sexually yeah. and stuff. And I just felt very exploitive and very weird. I was like, why is he going on these shows and they're asking him and he's talking, you know, but I'm sure like, you know, just like right now. You're asking me about it and I'm talking about it. Despite his cruelty, Justin continued successfully marketing himself as a sweet, broken-hearted prince. You know, um, I remember when we decided that we were going to go our separate ways. Yeah. We sat down and I said to her, I said, if there's ever a moment where you ever need me, you can rest assured that I will be there because I love you as a person and I will always love you. And yet the digs at Britney were consistent, not just in 2002, but throughout the last two decades. Although Justin says that all the lyrics on his new CD come from his own experience, he denies that any were written specifically for Britney. Yet when we sat down at the piano and asked him to play something from Justified, he chose instead to play a song that nobody has ever heard before. Interesting lyrics. Thought I loved so strong I guess I was dead wrong but to look at it positively hey girl at least you gave me another song about a horrible woman the Britney has always said and I'm quoting good morals mean waiting to have sex until after you've been married I would definitely agree with her on that okay did you and she live up to this during your relationship Sure. <laughs> sure. 
So, watching the VMAs the other night, it was like the Justin Timberlake show. There was so much drama over the kissing mm -hmm. on stage, and I was like, I, I, not that I didn't, you know, that I was upset about it, I just wasn't impressed. Donna has changed the way our world sounded, she's changed the way our world looked, and somehow she still found time to publicly kiss at least someone who I may or may not have kissed myself. While I was in the audience, the world has long been full of Madonna wannabes, and I might have even dated a couple. I'd like to think that, at first, he'll date a popular female singer. <laughs> Publicly, they'll claim to be virgins, but privately, he hid it. You think you met the one? Did you find out? He Stop drinking. You know who you are. I'm speaking to you. Stop drinking. You're going to get sloppy. Uh, OK is going to say something bad about you. Um, you guys have fun tonight. Thank you very much for this award. In a lot of ways, Justin Timberlake acted as an early personification for the humiliation the media and public would continue to inflict onto Britney for their own amusement. But Britney took her public shaming in stride. He has gone on television and pretty much said, you broke his heart, you did something that caused him so much pain, so much suffering. What did you do? I was upset. I was upset for a while. We both, I think we were both really young and it was kind of waiting to happen. And I will always love him. He'll always have a special place in my heart. He is such a great person. He's, he's left the impression that, that you weren't faithful, that you betrayed the relationship. I think everyone has a side to their story. And um, to make them feel a certain way, to make them feel, you know, and I'm not technically saying he's wrong, but I'm not technically saying he's right either, so. I admire bigger person Britney, but I adore pissed off Britney. Because it's cool when guys complain about things that girls have done to them and or their mothers. Cry me a river. I personally think it's kind of pussyfied, but it's like. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, whatever gets you in the game, right? And gets you out there. That's, that's cool. It's controversy. That's what they all want. That's what they want to see. It's how good you can play the game. So, Last week, we talked a little about the track Look Who's Talking Now, a song written by Brittany and Angela Hunt, which Angela later confessed was about Justin Timberlake. It was supposed to be Britt's official response to Justin, but even as a clapback, Britt wasn't looking to fully publicize her private conflicts. Angela told BuzzFeed, That song was totally about him. It was all, let's not put it all out there. She was like, he'll know what we mean, but the rest of the world won't. The song was later given to the artist Boa, but Britney's version leaked in 2012.
talking now didn't make it onto a Britney album. In 2003, In The Zone hit shelves with Every Time, a song that would later be made into a single and acted as a response to her very public breakup. Absolutely beautiful song with masterful songwriting. And who are the songwriters? That would be Britney Spears, who composed the music herself, and Annette Artani, who wrote the lyrics alongside Britney. Annette gave this statement. He was talking shit about her at the time on the radio. He was getting personal. Here she had a different type of image, and he was really exposing some stuff that she probably didn't want out there, and in front of her little sister. I remember her sister being mortified, and her being mortified. I'm sure that that really hurt her. And since Britney doesn't get enough credit for being a brilliant songwriter, I'm gonna read an excerpt from an interview she did at the time with Hip Online to highlight her involvement in the creation of this masterpiece. I wrote the whole thing from scratch on the piano. Musically, there was no track or anything. I was just at my house and I did the whole thing by myself. And then I went and I played it for Guy Sigsworth and I just basically told him exactly how I wanted the song to sound. And he was so amazing because there's a lot of producers, you tell them things and they don't get it. And you're like, oh, that's not the right way. He just got it right. He was amazing. And so that song specifically, you know, I did everything. And then there's the music video. One of the greatest of the 21st century. And since it's so special, we're gonna break it down moment by moment like we did with the lyrics for Mona Lisa. So it opens with an aerial shot of Las Vegas. There's gonna be a lot of foreshadowing for Britney's real life to mention coming up, and this one is minor since Britney would later spend much of her post-conservatorship career with a Las Vegas concert residency. Then Britney's limo pulls up to a hotel. She's sitting inside the vehicle with a man presumed to be her boyfriend, but the two are seated at a distance. As she tries to get his attention, he ignores her, talking to someone on his phone rather than paying attention to his girlfriend. Britney rolls her eyes like it's typical behavior, and the moment reminds me a bit of another In The Zone track, Shadow, which is likely also about Justin Timberlake. When they exit the limo, Britney is swarmed by paparazzi and fans alike, all in one mass of flashing cameras and magazines with Britney's face on the cover, along with Sharpies for her to sign autographs. Fights start breaking out. In the chaos, someone gets a hold of Britney and injures her head. Britt's boyfriend starts throwing a stack of tabloids at the crowd. The magazine covers read, Britney and Jason still in love, and Britney's shocking secrets revealed. As they move into a back hallway away from the crowd, Britney and her boyfriend are arguing. She seems frustrated at his behavior in the scene outside. Perhaps I'm projecting, but I wonder if Britney has a specific aversion to male aggression due to her father's poor anger management skills in her childhood. It's worth noting that around the time of her split from Justin, Britney's parents were also divorcing, a move Britney had reportedly been encouraging her mom to take for years. The problems Britney had with her father may have been on her mind as she navigated her own breakup. Moving on, once in their hotel room, Britney remains aggravated, but her boyfriend, at first, doesn't appear to take her annoyance seriously. He tries to put his arms around her, but when she pushes him off, he becomes irate, throwing a vase at the wall as Britney gets freaked out and runs away. 
From there, she goes into the bathroom, still upset but not wreaking as much havoc as her boyfriend, who's kicking drinks across the room and knocking the coffee table over. Now, in the original treatment, Brittany takes some unidentified pills with a glass of wine. The label allegedly forbid that plot from seeing the light of day, and while I disagree with Jive's decision to censor my girl Brittany in any way, I have to say I do like the official version a little better. Instead of taking pills, Brittany gets into her bath where she realizes the back of her head is bleeding. The implication is that one of the cameras hit her head outside and she loses consciousness in the tub and drowns in the water. This scene gave rise to a small controversy, with some viewers under the impression that Brittany was glamorizing suicide. Brittany had this to say about that interpretation. I wanted just to make sure a lot of people have been having a, like a lot of controversy out there because they think the video is about suicide. Mm -hmm. But if you watch closely at the story, my head gets hit by a camera and that's what it's about. But after I saw, you know, the whole thing and I kind of think parents, if it was about suicide, I think it probably would have been kind of a positive thing because the percentage rate in suicide right now is the highest it's ever been. And I think the more aware people are of it, it makes the kids not feel alone. But um, that's not the case. But anyways, it's, a, it's not about suicide. But um, I just, I really don't like the huge fuss about it because I just don't want to offend anyone. In intellectual. Like, she came with statistics that I didn't look up so I can't verify myself, but I'm sure she was right. I trust her. Anyway, one of the reasons people misunderstood Britney's death scene is because of a shot of her hand. When she reaches behind her and touches the back of her head, she pulls her hand back to see a pool of blood on her palm. MTV writer Jennifer Vineyard suggested that the bloody palm might be meant as stigmata, wounds on your hand or feet resembling the injuries of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Again, the injury is actually from the camera that hit her head, but the religious imagery does work with the rest of the video. Below her palm, Brittany is wearing a thin, small red bracelet, which some incorrectly believed was a line of blood from Brittany slitting her wrist. It was actually a red string. For followers of Kabbalah, a faith stemming from Jewish mysticism, the red string represents a common practice of warding off negativity from evil spirits. There's a similar custom in the Hindu religion as well. At the time, Brittany had been studying Kabbalah with Madonna as her mentor. In March of 2005, Brittany wrote in one of her letters of truth, Madonna first introduced Kabbalah to me at a time in my life when it was much needed. It helped me get rid of a lot of negative influences that were guiding me down the wrong path. There came a point where not even my family or my advisors had the answers I needed. The answers I was looking for were all in my heart. Through Kabbalah, I was able to look within myself, clear all the negative energy, and turn my life around. Now that the chaos has subsided, I finally feel as though I have the control I've wanted over my own destiny. I'm in a place where I can take Kabbalah seriously and truly learn from it. Whatever your religion may be, it's amazing what the power of prayer can do. It can even perform miracles. In May of 2006, Brittany announced in another letter that she was no longer studying Kabbalah, saying, quote, My baby is my religion, unquote. For much of her early career, Brittany's Christian faith played a large role in her public image, down to her public declaration of a celibate lifestyle. If you were talking to your little sister now, and the girl who said that she was going to stay a virgin till she got married, do you still think there's something to be said for that? I think, honestly, if you can wait till you're married, I think you should definitely 
do that because it's so much more sacred. And there is a reason for saying to do that. There is a rule in the book, the Bible, that says that. I think that is a really important thing to do. As time went on, though, Britney's religious beliefs seemed to become less rigid, a development that freaked out Britney's devout Christian family. Here's an excerpt from Lynn Spears' book talking about Britney's relationship with Justin Timberlake. For the most part, I liked their relationship, although not every aspect of it was pleasing to me. Early in their relationship, for example, she and Justin began having heartfelt conversations about the meaning of life, as all young adults do, and one day she came to talk to me. Mama, I just don't know if there really is a right and a wrong anymore, she said thoughtfully. I mean, is anything really wrong? Looking back, that's about the time Brittany started questioning her Christian faith. I do believe she will come back to her faith roots someday soon, but this was really where she took a left turn on her spiritual journey. In a way, I understood, remembering how I had doubts myself in my world religion class at my Catholic high school. And I didn't like it one bit later on that the two of them were going to buy a house and live together at the age of 19. But at that point, I could have talked myself until I was blue in the face about morals and values and, for heaven's sake, good common sense. No one was particularly open to my input at the time, let's put it that way. It's believed by many, including Lynn Spears, that after the back-to-back -back births of her two sons, Brittany suffered from postpartum depression. Around that time, it was reported that Brittany had begun leaning on her family, specifically her mother, for support, when Lynn allegedly started encouraging Brittany to abandon Kabbalah and resume practicing her Christian faith. With all the discussions surrounding Brittany's former conservatorship, the influence Christian fundamentalism had on the motives and daily operations of Team Khan has been underemphasized in the media. Most people aware of the situation have assumed that money was the primary driver behind the conservatorship, and while that maybe became true, Team Khan's original mission was to heal Britney's mental illness through the power of Jesus or something. Lou Taylor, the woman often credited as giving Jamie Spears the idea for the conservatorship, is a deeply religious business manager with a pastor husband for Cavalry Chapel and ties to Christian megachurches. After Britney's conservatorship was put into place, those controlling her assets closed the Britney Spears Foundation, an organization aimed at providing music and performing arts education to children in low-income families, and moved part of the remaining funds to an organization called Mercy Multiplied, formerly known as Mercy Ministries. They had to do a big rebrand because the organization, which runs a Christian residential program for troubled young women, was accused by multiple former residents of practicing gay conversion therapy via exorcisms. Leaked emails allegedly from Britney to her lawyer at the time show Britney complaining of Lou's attempts to contact her in 2007, a few months before the conservatorship was put into place. Britney allegedly wrote, She keeps saying that I'm possessed, that she needs to come and kill these spirits. In a different email allegedly sent to Britney, Lou Taylor writes, I wanted to tell you how proud I am of you for sticking out a deliverance process. It takes courage to face something you are unsure of and it takes so long. I wanted you to know that I think of you often and I am praying that strength and peace constantly falls upon your heart. You are precious in his sight and a jewel in his crown. The Bible says God gives beauty for ashes and you are beautiful. If you ever just need to talk offline, I am here to hear you. Leading up to Britney's conservatorship, Lou had gained a place within the Spears family. 
They seem to bond over their shared faith. Well, you know, what I would like to say is that I really feel like people just do not know the Spears family. What they don't know about Jamie and Lynn Spears is that every day Jamie goes to work as a professional chef, asking the Lord to give him the strength to honor the people he works for in the midst of circumstances. That Lynn Spears is a mother that is brokenhearted just because she's apart from her daughter, that she loves her daughter so much, and again, asking every day for God to give her strength and for her to continue to have hope. So really for, I guess for me to be self-indulgent for a moment, that I would really hope that all those who seek God for strength in their life would be interceding for this family because Jamie Spears, Lynn Spears, Brian and Jamie Lynn Spears are all amazing people. TMZ reported in October of last year that Team Con tried curing Brittany with religion. Our sources say for the first year, Jamie Robin, that being Robin Greenhill, and Lou literally walked around with the Bible in hand, proselytizing the word of God. We're told for a time they would only let Brittany read religious material. And we're told there was a large measure of intolerance for anyone who wasn't a good Christian. In a Q&A on Instagram, Brittany said this last year. What religion am I? I'm Baptist. I grew up Baptist, but I ended up studying Kabbalah. So I go back and forth, but I do believe there is a God. Brittany also stated that the tattoo on the back of her neck is her favorite, a small phrase written in Hebrew with significance to the Kabbalah faith. Looks like Team Khan's attempt to bring Brittany into their born-again cult didn't pan out exactly how they would have preferred. But the fluidity of Brittany's religious beliefs can be seen in the Every Time video, with possible references to stigmata, the red string of her Kabbalah studies, and a belief in reincarnation worked into the video's plot. After Brittany drowns in the water, she's transported to a hospital dressed in pure white, overlooking a child's birth with the implication that her soul has moved on to a new body. Coming into the bathroom and seeing her body laying under the water, Brittany's boyfriend jumps into the bath to pull her out. The video then moves to a scene with Brittany's body on a stretcher, being loaded into an ambulance as paparazzi and fans still hound her body. It's not unlike the very real scene that would play out in Britney's life at the start of 2008, with her being taken to a hospital via an ambulance on a 5150 hold twice in January. Like in every time, paparazzi were present to photograph Britney being loaded into an ambulance via gurney. Helicopters hovered above as well. Britney predicted the media documenting her medical crisis with the Everytime video, but what's striking to me is how she also depicted her own fan base in the video as well. Not only are cameras thrust in her face on the stretcher, her fans are also present, holding out magazines for her to autograph despite her body being presumably dead. Though Britney maintains a good relationship with much of her fan base and has credited them with helping her gain freedom from her conservatorship, some fans undoubtedly inflict expectations onto Britney that are just as unfair as the people who constantly bash her. After the New York Times documentary Framing Britney Spears debuted in 2021, a common sentiment I saw online was the claim that the Leave Britney Alone guy was right all along, referring to this infamous video from 2007. Perez Hilton talked about professionalism and said if Britney was a professional, she would have pulled it off no matter what. Speaking of professionalism, when is it professional to publicly bash someone who's going through a hard time? Leave Britney alone! Please! Let's first note that Kara Cunningham, the person who made the video, is not a guy. 
She came out as a trans woman around August of last year. But even Kara, who once defended Britney with passionate screams along with snot and tears, turned on Britney once she neglected to send Kara a personalized thank you. I want to know, first of all, did you ever hear from Britney Spears? I didn't, and I'm actually not a fan anymore. I'm, I'll say that here today on your show. Wow. Um, she didn't even send me a fruit basket privately. No thank you, nothing. She should have sent me a fruit basket, Rachel. I think she should have, because that was some serious support you were giving her. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, I so feel like I should have at least got a private thank you. <laughs> I, I, a note, she could have written a little note. Right. Something. Yeah. I would have sent you fruit were you sticking up for me like that with that amount of passion. I, I wish it were you I was sticking up Thank for. You, You're baby. better than Britney. Thank you. So, Everybody wanted something from Britney, even those that supposedly thought we should all just leave her alone. At the end of the video, Britney emerges from the water, implying that her death was just a dream. That's something her label wanted added in rejection to Britney's original, darker vision for her work, which really wasn't even that dark when you add the fact that she was reincarnated, but whatever. Britney couldn't even have that. To conclude this entire series, I'll say that I genuinely do hope the world leaves Britney alone soon. I hope her label, if she decides to make music again, lets her explore her artistic vision at her own pace without any adherence to a particular image that no human could possibly embody in full. I hope she gets the opportunity to explore her religious and philosophical beliefs on her own terms and lives within the terms of her own values. I hope that the world is compassionate to her with her newfound freedom and that any mistakes she makes won't be sensationalized for mass entertainment. And above all, I hope she gets to start the family and live the life she's happy in even if we never get another song or Instagram nude. I'd be bummed if that happened. If I love two things in this world, it's pop music and boobs. But Britney's waited long enough to be able to make her own decisions and tell everyone that wants something from her to fuck off, including me. So if you made it this far into this episode or this series, thank you. Um. It took a lot more time than I thought that it would, which is why this episode is a little late. And because of that, the next episode will not be out this coming Tuesday, but the next Tuesday after. And it will be not Britney related, but I hope you come back anyway. Okay, bye! Whoa, girl, fuck. Wow. Oh my god. Uh...